Welcome to FinTech Fridays. Oh, yeah. A weekly podcast brought to you by the National Crowdfunding and FinTech Association of Canada and Partners. Covering all things FinTech, blockchain, P2P, AI, and alternative finance. Hello, everyone. My name is Craig Asano, the founder and CEO of NCFA Canada. Welcome you to season four of FinTech Fridays. This is episode 58, a weekly podcast brought to you by NCFA and Partners, where we sit down with incredible people in the FinTech and funding community around the globe to talk about the latest trends, product innovations, developments, and challenges. Today, we have a very interesting guest with us in the risk management space. Mr. Alex Sidorenko, who brings 14 plus years of executive risk management experience across strategic investment and operational risks and insurance, working with uh, multi-billion dollar corporations in Australia, GCC and Europe. He's successfully implemented changes to quantitative risk analysis, risk-based decision-making and neuroscience. He's an author of a popular free risk management book that's been translated in three languages and has been downloaded over 150,000 times. So if uh, you like what you hear today, go get that, the free risk management download. Alex was named the risk manager of the year by Firma in 2021 and has many years before that been recognized as a leading risk management expert. So Alex, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Craig, and welcome to your listeners. Yes. So today, like all of our podcasts here at FinTech Fridays, we're going to just organize the discussion into a few different parts. We're going to kick it off with an intro Then we're going to talk about, uh, you know, what is risk management? And then we're going to get into the tools, the techniques, the culture of risk management. And then we're going to uh, wrap it up by looking at the future. You know, what's happening in the risk management space in the future, the innovations, the trends, uh, how the job and the role is actually changing. So to kick things off, um, you know, Alex is the CEO and, and Chief Risk Officer at the Risk Academy. Um, Alex, do you want to just tell us a little bit more about how you got into risk management and the work you're doing there? Uh, sh sure thing. I, um, unlike many people, uh, which is, uh, I think, a big surprise, I actually educated in risk management because after school, uh, back in Australia, I, just like most people, had no idea what I wanted to do. And my dad was doing a PhD in chemical engineering at the time at one of the biggest universities in Australia. And he said, well, there's this new degree called risk management. It sounds fun. And like most children, I said, sure, I couldn't care less. Why not? <laughs> and so I um, applied for different uh, options and risk management for me was option number four. Um, I mean, who knew that it actually turned out by complete coincidence, turned out to be amazing and I had a great career and I, I love risk management in life and uh, in, in, uh, in my corporate job. Um, but yes, it was, it was basically a complete coincidence because I didn't get into corporate finance and into law uh, at the same university and the risk management was, was my, my fourth choice. And so uh, that was it. And then I did uh, really well at one of the statistical subjects and the uh, department of statistics can, kept sending me a letter saying, do a second major in statistics. And I kept ignoring it and they kept sending it year after year because I got really good marks in, uh, in different statistical subjects that were part of my risk management curriculum. And so anyway, at some stage I just went like, oh, why not? So I have two degrees, one in risk management, and uh, we were the first ever 
bachelors, graduates uh, in Australia in risk management. Uh, I think the irony of this whole story is that the department then dropped the course a few years later, realizing that risk management is not a profession and it's a competency that any decision maker, business owner, or senior executive should have. And it makes no sense to educate people to become risk managers. Instead, you should just educate risk management as part of normal curriculum in management sciences or you know, economics or corporate finance. And so, yeah, I, I'm basically the result of a failed experiment. <laughs> well, any, anyone who says uh, to, to their father, the parents, you know, risk, risk management, and you say, I think your response was, this is fun. Uh, you got to you gotta really dig statistics, I guess, and analysis. I think it's part of, of anyone's um, role in management these days to make effective uh, risk-based decisions. Doesn't matter if you're dealing with, um, you know, a, a regulatory decision of financial services or or just any sort of key risks in in the whole risk management space. So the risk academy work that you're doing, can you tell us what what that's about? That that's your uh, actual consultancy practice, or well, it's 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 a hobby more more than a consultancy yeah. practice. Um, and let me tell you about how it started because that is the essence of risk management. Because throughout my career, I was working for you know, large global corporations. I started as a consultant in Deloitte then PwC, but then quite soon moved into kind of in-house risk management. So I was the risk manager for one of the sovereign funds in Europe. Then I, uh, I was the risk manager for a private equity fund. Then I was an advisor to the CRO of a sovereign fund in Middle East. Then I was the chief risk officer for one of the biggest you know, $10 billion fertilizer companies in the world uh, operating out of Europe. And Risk Academy kind of started as my personal risk management because in my first job outside of consulting, I started applying the same principles and ideas and methodologies that I was promoting as a consultant. And I was, at the time, I was one of the co-authors of the global PwC methodology on risk. So whatever, you know, whatever PwC was selling at the time, you know, PwC, big global company, whatever they were selling to their clients as risk management services, I wrote a big chunk of that. And so when I actually joined the company and I started applying that, I realized how useless and dangerous and damaging all of those ideas were. And not only that, I realized- and you had written at that time? This yes, I, I've written a big chunk of that. Uh, probably the, uh, the least horrible parts of it. There were much more horrible parts to the, to, to the methodology. So yeah, to, I mean, to this day, my involvement in uh, you know, this consulting methodol risk methodologies is uh, that, 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 that I think that shame that drives everything else I do with passion because I've now kind of you know, went 180 and doing everything to stop companies from doing the same management uh, consulting talk and all, all of the other management fads that we were so heavily promoting. Um, but so Risk Academy, that was literally my personal risk management because when I, in my first job as an in-house risk manager, I started applying everything I wrote for, for PwC. So I started kind of testing it in real life environment and none of it worked. And I was very scared of losing my job because I thought I knew 
like I had something to bring to the table, but then I realized whatever I had to bring to the table was a waste of space. It didn't actually change any decisions. It didn't lead to you know, improved quality of business. Um, and so I started a hobby, which was basically a blog, a YouTube channel, and some uh, training courses, which were both free and, and paid. And so I started from that moment on for the next I don't know, 10 years, probably from that moment on, everything I ever done in practice, I would repackage it and reshape it and publish it e either as webinars, videos, books, articles, um, templates. And so Risk Academy kind of became, became this huge blog with almost 200,000 people audience per year. And the YouTube channel just ticked over 10,000 subscribers. So I have this kind of this platform now that I try and publish everything that I actually do. And I no longer write anything about hypothetical topics that I haven't actually implemented or tested in my kind of corporate corporate life. So Risk Academy, and you know, that obviously generates some income. So Risk Academy is just my personal example of risk management. Um, whenever I don't want to work anymore for a corporation, or whenever I lose a job for some reason, or whenever I move to a different country, I always have this kind of, you know, this second and third and fourth and fifth income streams generating from Risk Academy to, um, to support me. Smart. Well, you're an educator. It sounds like you're you're a change maker. You're an innovator. It just happens to be in the risk management space. You you learned the traditional frameworks. Maybe you were disillusioned that they weren't working in in certain uh, situations by applying those techniques. And as an expert practitioner, you learned you know maybe a modern or different approach. So you know, looking forward to getting into to that and hearing your thoughts on that. But ahead of that, um, I know that it's very time sensitive that. Next week is the Risk Awareness Week. It's something that you you founded. You're you're the host of that. Can you tell us about that? Uh, so so four years ago, uh, long before COVID, Mark Mark Mark, that's an important point. I um, I finally created what I was going to create for many many years. I finally created a virtual platform where I can get together good risk practitioners from all over the world without the need for travel, for the logistics, for the, all the costs associated with physical events, um, making it accessible to um, more than 15,000 people since from 121 countries, um, making a lot of information available for free. So I created this platform where it's basically like, it's a, it's a, it's a one week, so five day virtual conference. It runs every single October, usually somewhere around 18th of October because it's my wife's birthday, and I thought I'm, I'll, I'll make a present to her. I'll create the whole, I'll create the biggest risk management conference on the planet in her, uh, in her honor. Uh, which, by the way, she hates because we <laughs> is always. Is it the biggest? Is it the biggest risk management conference in the world? Uh, as as far as I'm aware, it is. Okay. I've just came back from uh, uh, a the biggest European risk management uh, conference. Uh, in Europe, physical event, and that had uh, 1,900 participants, and that was their record, um, out of which probably 70 to 80% are salespeople. So kind of you can't really take them seriously as an audience. They're just there for work. And um, uh, so 
you know, that's 1,900. Uh, we just ticked over 3,000 today. And usually there's like an exponential growth before the actual conference starts. So usually we have like about 5,000 per year. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's a little bit less, uh, but it's around 5,000 per, uh, per year. And, and then so like after some time, all the workshops become available for free on YouTube, usually a year or two years later. And you know, there are other thousands of people that kind of continue watching the workshops that haven't seen them during the conference. So in terms of impact, I, I'd say it's, um, uh, it, it's, uh, it's pretty big. Uh, so that's starting next week from 17th of October and runs until 21st of October. Um, five days of workshops. Each day has its own theme. Um, you know, for example, day, day two is all about uh, neuroscience and risk identification. You know, uh, how uh, uh, discovering from actual practitioners and scientists, discovering how our brain works and why humans don't see the risks, despite the fact that they're always there and they just ignore and disregard uh, warning signs and kind of the scientific explanation for why that happens and how to overcome that. And, and day three is all about quanti uh, quantifying uncertainty, you know, making complex decisions under uncertainty by measuring, uh, analyzing and quantifying risks, you know, pretty good. And again, like NASA engineers, you know, Stanford professors, they 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 are the the lecturers during the risk awareness. Plus, of course, I share all my case studies. You know, just last year, you know, we saved millions of dollars on insurance premiums by quantifying the risk exposure. So I have a lot of cases in in my professional career where risk management kind of changes the world uh, for a particular decision that that we were asked to help analyze. Well, I, I think it's a good segue into the, the what is risk management topic. It's clearly growing um, <clears throat> and people must be thinking here who are watching the podcast, you know, what, what types of risks are there? What are we talking about? Are, these aren't cyber risks because that's uh, a, a different type of risk. These are what exactly, how, how do you see risk management? Yeah. So, so risk management is a very ironic field. It's I guess it's probably not too dissimilar to what happens in other disciplines, um, but here's here's the kind of here's the the fun part of it. Uh, risk management is based on three fundamental sciences. It's the probability theory, which is about 500 years old. It's basically making sense of uncertainty, trying to measure uncertainty, trying to see if your decision changes if you in, incorporate or take into account uncertainty. So you, you like, for example, you don't know how much to pay for a, an insurance policy. Well, we can calculate it. We can measure that. You don't, you don't know which of two uncertain choices are better. You know, immigrate or not immigrate. Both options are have risks associated with them. And intuitively, it's not that simple to choose the best one. And uh, there, there's, you know, there's a science that kind of deals with that. So probability theory is 500 years old. The second science is decision science is how do we incorporate that probability theory into how we make decisions? And that's more than a hundred years old. And then there's kind of the youngest of the three sciences, it's called neuroscience. It's basically how does human brain process uncertainty? You know, for example, why do we make silly choices? Like very silly choices completely disregarding the underlying risk. You know, why are we making decisions that are suboptimal and sometimes just outrageously bad? So there's, you know, there are three, there are two Nobel prizes in economics for that, for that research. And these three fundamental sciences, they all have 
a number of Nobel prizes in their respective study fields because they're, they're proper respected sciences in the world. And so the youngest one is about 70 years old. And here's the irony, the greatest irony. Risk management, once it kind of been a science for like 500 years, it has been commoditized by consultants and later picked up by the regulators approximately 30 to 40 years ago. So they had this kind of complex science, a, a group of sciences actually had a complex group of sciences that only a few selected people could understand and make sense of it and quantify and use it and make a lot of money doing that because it's a very powerful set of disciplines. And then somebody in consulting, you know, big four, according to some investigations, they thought, well, that sounds really sexy. Why don't we commoditize it? Why don't we simplify it, like dumb it down so people can get it and then just turn it into like this corporate governance, uh, you know, a nice to have thing that any organization on the planet should have in one form or another. And so what happened is they took, I don't know, maybe you can like, you can think of an, an analogy. Um, they, they took a complex topic and they dumbed it down to a level that became meaningless. It, it's like taking astronomy as in like physical, you know, chemical science of space and dumbing it down to turn it into astrology, which is basically horoscopes. So horoscopes has nothing to do with reality. It's just, it's all made up, it's fairy tales. Horoscopes is fairy tales. And I hope every listener kind of understands that. They, they just made up, like there's no real science behind them whatsoever. And so what we now have is we have this kind of old scientific risk management, which has been around for decades and hundreds of years with a lot of techniques that have been um, researched, backtested, validated, and kind of you know, things that work. And then we have this kind of new look at risk management, which is basically astrology, so horoscopes. So just completely made up, nice pictures, nice, um, nice things. And here's the trouble. Most regulators picked up the astrology. They didn't pick up the astronomy, which is the science, they picked up the astrology. And so whenever we talk about what is risk management, um, the simple answer is, well, risk management is all three sciences that have been around for hundreds of years. And then unfortunately, some people mistakenly think that risk management is what they see in marketing brochures or some of the regulatory documents or even some legislations. Uh, and the, the kind of the, the, the downside of that is that this modern looking risk management has nothing to do with actual risk management. It's just basically horoscopes. It's, 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 it's fairy tales. And the method, in fact, if you do follow the methodologies, you would get wrong answers most of the time. Uh, so it's just a kind of, it's, it's this pretend, you know, play pretend um, in risk management. So are you, are you saying that in some way those frameworks, the horoscope frameworks, they, they, they clearly are not, maybe they're originally ba loosely based on science, but they can't apply to all situations, so it makes them impractical. So, I mean, in, in a science-based or, or driven risk management program, I, I was, you know, here's a question for you. What advice or what sort of steps would you give to a company who's just looking at, you know, starting the risk management journey? How do they approach it from a practical way? Not the horoscopes, not the, the framework that you're talking about, and what size company can, can really benefit from this? And, and, and clearly um, there's a lot to dig into. What kinds of um, jobs are there? 
who are the key stakeholders? What are, what are the responsibilities? Let's start to fill in the picture inside a company. Uh, so that's uh, about a dozen questions, which I'll try, <laughs> which I'll which I'll try and uh, unpack. Uh, so first, and you know, again, for simplicity, and I think um, your your listeners will kind of appreciate that. For simplicity' sake, uh, I just call everything to do with scientific risk management, kind of anything that is a technique that has proven its worth, we call it risk management too. And anything that is nice looking horoscope type pictures that has pretty much no relation to the underlying science. And uh, it's not, the, the unfortunate thing, it's not even loosely based. I wish it was loosely based on the science. No, it's just completely made up like some, um, very weird people just make up things in risk management and then they just promote the hell out of it. And some people begin to believe that this is somehow related. So we call all of that, like all of that bucket, uh, all of that pile of, uh, of nonsense, we just call it risk management one. And so that's the, that's, that's the first part for, we call anything that has some sort of practical application, some sort of real value, we call it risk management two. And anything that is just pretty pictures that leads to nowhere, we call it risk management one. And uh, one of the kind of key things, I guess, to for the, for the people to, to realize is that risk management one has became so prominent in the corporate world that we have no escape from it. I've been fighting the system for a very long time. For example, I've been fighting with the Ministry of Economics and Ministry of Finance, uh, trying to block their attempts to legislate and issue different guidelines on risk management one. Um, and at the end, and, and I, I was successful at some, I wasn't successful in others. At, at the end, it, 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 is, it is important to realize that both of those things will have to coexist because there are certain stakeholders that don't want real answers. In fact, they're intimidated and scared by the understanding of the real underlying risk exposure. And so they, they just want pretty pictures. They want the feeling, the warm feeling, um, like board members, for example, or audit committees or external auditors. Um, most of the time, they just want the warm feeling of seeing something in, in place. So there is, there, there is still, unfortunately, a lot of room for risk management one. And, and so whenever somebody asks me, where do you start? Well, I always say the same thing. Start with risk management one. Um, have, understand who are the stakeholders in your specific industry, in your company. If there is anyone who wants to see some sort of some sort of form of risk management, or if there is any local guideline or regulation or a requirement by a bank, for example, or an insurance company to have risk management in place, keep in mind that 99% of the time that's risk management one. And good news is you can get risk management, like you can build this facade and it's, it's basically window dressing. You can build the window dressing really, really quickly and really painful, painlessly. Uh, so if anybody wants to start with risk management, check for risk management one requirements. You just never know. Like there's, there's usually someone who wants to see some sort of risk management. And as soon as you realize they're not serious, they're just asking for pretty pictures, give them the pretty pictures. And I think there are a lot of kind of companies that are specifically designing their you know, automation products to create pretty pictures quickly. 
So that there's that there are a lot of templates available. And by the way, you know, Risk Academy also has a lot of templates where you can just kind of copy paste things and that's it. You have the necessary paperwork to tick the box that risk management one exists. So that's um, that's that's the first step always because you don't you don't want to do kind of real work for somebody to just come in and ruin it and say, oh, where's such and such? Like, where's the risk management policy? Well, risk management policy is a useless piece of document, but you don't want management to be or anybody else distracted from the actual good work that you're doing by somebody coming in and saying, this is all wrong because you don't have some you know, imaginary piece of paper. You want to make sure that all of these imaginary pieces of paper exist before you start with real work. Uh, but then real work, which is what we call the space of risk management too, um, it, it's, it, it's very simple. Whenever there is an important decision at hand for the company, it could be the planning per, per process, it could be investment process, it could be and the credit risk. If somebody is selling products and um, it gives a lot of advances, you may, you may want to take care of that. It could be cyber risk. Like Once you figure out what are the important decisions, what are the important risky decisions that the business is taking, then there is a methodology because you're not starting from scratch, because I remind you that risk management too has existed for 500 years uh, already, uh, you don't have to start with a blank piece of paper. There is someone somewhere who already created the methodology that you just can, you need to copy for whatever decision or problem or choice that your company needs to make. Whenever you basically forecast in your planning or budgeting about a future, there's a lot of uncertainty associated with that. And by appreciating and understanding risk and quantifying how that those risks affect your decision, your decisions would change most of the time. In fact, that's like this is how powerful risk management is. You try and apply risk analysis to something that you intuitively think is, you know, A is better than B. And then you apply, you try and quantify the risks and you try and reconsider what is better given the risks and the uncertainty. And suddenly B becomes better than A. And that happens all the time. Like we intuitively, we think one thing, and then when we start analyzing risks, actually turns out to be something completely different. In fact, there's, and this is the, the, the final kind of point I'll say on this very long answer. Um, in fact, there's, there's, there's a researcher called Philip Tetlock. He wrote a lot of you know, best-selling books and one of, his, uh, one of his findings, he's been collecting forecasts uh, for over 20 years. And so he collected about 80,000 forecasts in all sorts of fields of uh, and disciplines or all parts of life basically politics military economy social like anything you can think of his conclusion is very simple there is no discipline on earth where intuition would be consistently outperforming simple uh, simple quantitative analysis he he calls it like linear regression but that's you know too many complex words his point is our intuition based on his observations and his research is not as powerful as we'd like to think. And in fact, um, you know, NASA did also another interesting study. They uh, selected hundred projects and they placed uh, engineers who understand the risks inside out and gave them poor risk management one tools. And then they put accountants that did not understand the underlying risks and gave them proper risk management two tools. And then they measured who was less wrong because obviously you can't get, guess everything correctly, but your error is measurable. And, and so the error for accountants with the right tools 
So they didn't understand the, the risk, but they had the right tools, was twice as low, was half, the error was half that of engineers that were really smart people with really bad tools, risk management one tools. So you don't, you know, you, you, can, you can benefit from kind of your quantitative risk analysis quite, quite easily. So, so those, um, you know, the, the updated, the modernized, you know, risk management two templates, they're, they're on your website, the Risk Academy website, but as a, as a CEO of, let's say, a, a growing company, um, things become challenging, more complex, can they make those decisions uh, in-house or do they need to hire someone to, you know, train in-house, do they hire external in-house, how do they approach it? How do they, at, at what point does a company, because it sounds like the, the science part can be applied to every decision in, in any situation, On the planet. but yeah. it's going to slow things down. Yes. You, you see these startups, they're, they're breakneck, it's very competitive. Yeah. At what point, what is the roadmap for those companies and how can they think about it to get the benefits without you know, being dragged into the rabbit hole of, you know, this is, uh, we're, we're handcuffed. Yeah, yeah. So, so again, this this is a, this is a very important question, and I wanted to start by saying that templates are available um, on the Risk Academy, on the Risk Academy blog. But more importantly, the whole purpose of Risk Awareness Week, this annual five-day conference, is that I I invite uh, actual risk professionals, some of the best risk professionals on the planet. And they literally demonstrate how they either build templates or how they apply templates and they share their findings. There are uh, only a small selection of just kind of conversational workshops. Most of the workshops, people actually demonstrate like literally in Excel, in different like in R or Python, they demonstrate how they uh, deal with, uh, with, with risks for day-to-day you know, -day problems. Uh, so that, that 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 that's one thing, uh, and now the second part of the uh, the second part of the uh, part of the answer is whenever there is a problem that has a lot at stake, that it has a lot of uncertainty associated. That uncertainty can be reduced through quantitative risk analysis. For example, uh, we were renewing some insurance. And uh, it was our hypothesis was that if we actually understood the risk profile of the things we were insuring and then communicate that risk profile to the insurance markets, we would save on insurance premiums without uh, reducing the quality of coverage and in fact, improving the quality of coverage. So what, what we did is we spent, I don't know, probably a month uh, on um, understanding the nature of the risk, collecting data, uh, quantifying it, and uh, then explaining to the markets what was the risk that we wanted to transfer to the insurance markets. Um, we did the, like, the homework for about a month. Then within a week of the actual communication with the markets, we saved $3 million. And then for another project, we did exactly the same. And we actually spent maybe about a week of homework and quantifying, and we ended up saving $5.7 million. So in those situations, and I want it to be very, very clear, there are problems that your company is facing, no matter how, how, how small, um, that are worth it. 
And so for us, when we saved, you know, we, we actually, by, you know, by the end of the year, we ended up saving about $13 million. Um, for us, it was a no-brainer. If we knew we could save millions of dollars, like real hardcore savings, um, because of some simple calculations, the extra calculations that we did, for us, it was an absolute no-brainer uh, to do it because, uh, just to kind of to put it in perspective, the $13 million that we saved uh, on using quantitative risk analysis on just insurance, you know, not, not even touching all the other business processes where we were involved, that paid for the whole department's the whole work of the, the, the whole risk team uh, for the next 15 years. So that, 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 that was really not, not a no-brainer for us. Uh, so the smaller the company, the bigger the decision should be. Because for example, you know, we were a big company. So for us, even a small decision allowed us to save millions of dollars. And that was a simple, simple choice. Should we spend extra time on analyzing risks? Well, Obviously, because the savings are very tangible. Uh, for smaller companies, it means that they would need to find a bigger decision. And it could be packaging your company for the next uh, you know, investment round, um, building a business plan that you can defend, you know, incorporating different scenarios into your business plan that you can defend against the investors or um, trying to figure out how much money you need for an expansion or, or you know, how much liquidity, what's your liquidity situation. Uh, so if the problem is worthwhile, the attention of the CEO of even the smallest startup, there is a chance, well, the, yeah, it, no, let me rephrase that. I am certain that there is enough justification for some sort of risk analysis to be done. And risk analysis is not a single thing. It's a whole range of potential techniques. Like you can do risk analysis on a napkin and you can build a very complex mathematical model that requires you know, hours and hours of modeling computer power to process all the different uncertainties. It's a very big range. And choosing the kind of choosing the tool along this range uh, is something like there are many techniques that me and my wife use in our life. Like I had a model for my wedding. Oh. I have a model. <laughs> Really? Yeah, but, yeah, no, no, I'm not. I'm not kidding. I had a Monte. I had a Monte Carlo model for my wedding um, to match match up. The, you know, the forecasted presence versus forecasted expenses to just budget like how much money we needed in reserve. Yeah. By the way, my future wife hated it, um, but that was fun. Um, I have a like. I have a model. I have a a a, a decision model for you know buying apartment or buying a house or renting an apartment. Again, so like. Whenever there is an, a decision big enough, I would sit down and write something. We like we 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 use simple decision trees for picking a birthday venue for our daughter. So like, there are some things you can literally draw on a napkin, and that already creates a lot of clarity in your in your mind. Because because the I think the kind of the bottom line is intuition especially for the, you know, the CEOs and founders and owners of small business. Intuition is great for um, common, regular, basic problems. There is absolutely no science evidence to suggest that intuition is good for new uh, complex problems or initiatives. There's absolutely no science. So relying on your intuition is you're relying on your own mental model. 
which has statistically been proven to be quite ineffective. So you basically, you're sacrificing by, by thinking that you're making this decision based on your gut and experience and you're making it quickly, you're actually sacrificing quite a lot because you're using a suboptimal model for, for the decision. And uh, uh, the alternative is to have a little bit more clarity around the risks associated with that decision. It could be, you know, how many people I need to hire, what's the location of the new office, you know, what's the, do we invest in the technology, you know, do we rent, do we buy, like all sorts of decisions, you know, how much money do we need for the next six months, how much, you know, what's the, how do we evaluate our company to get a, um, a new investment round. Uh, all, all of these decisions can benefit significantly from additional clarity and understanding, well, how does, how does uncertainty, how does risk affect all the assumptions that we're making? Because every business plan, every model, every investment decision, they're all based on multiple assumptions. And those assumptions are uncertain. And if you just disregard this uncertainty, if you just think, well, okay, well, you know, we will have 100,000, uh, you know, 100 clients. And you make your decision based on that assumption that you will have 100 clients, your decision would be wrong most of the time because, well, what if you don't have 100? What if you have less? But what if you have more? Um, that's, the, that's the whole idea of risk management, trying to replace this kind of single point estimates, single point assumptions with some sort of ranges and looking at the future, not as a single scenario that we fall in love with, but as just a you know, multitude of possible scenarios, trying to think about anything in terms of scenarios, you know, what if it doesn't work out? What if it works out better? What if it works out slower? What if it works out and somebody else does something? Just thinking in, in kind of in the sense of alternatives. And so in, in that regard, any company like you know, me as a single individual, I use risk management techniques for my decision-making. So any company on the planet can do exactly the same. It's just you know, the range of tools, they'll probably stick around with some of the kind of basic techniques at the beginning of the spectrum before they move into more kind of financial modeling part. It's fascinating, and, and I love the, the approach. I mean, one of the challenges with a lot of companies uh, in earlier stage, they lack data. So you're talking if intuition isn't effective uh, and, and you need inputs like data to do that quantification, that analysis, the decisioning, to, to break it down, to organize it, to come to some clarity. What if in the absence of data and, and knowing that intuition while it can help a speedy decision may, may not be as effective as proven, what advice would you give to companies that will obviously collect as much data as possible and, and start building and incorporating into a model, a framework to support those key decisions? Um, but what, what else can they, they do and is it worth it or because they're relying on intuition? Um, so, I mean, you have no idea what a great question this, this is um, because I have, I have a good friend who is a Stanford professor and he is the, his name is Sam Savage. He's, um, he's the son of Jimmy Savage, which, which, who is like the godfather of modern statistics and one of the creators of this whole you know, risk management science. And, and um, so we, we do a weekly webcast and we call it uh, top 10 lame excuses for not doing risk management. <laughs> and uh, not having data is, um, I think it's number one yeah. because it is literally the most common excuse we hear. By the way, it's an excuse. So it's not, it's not a real issue. And um, 
he is uh, he he's again another important analogy um, that we always use in risk management. Uh, think of electricity. Uh, there are people that use electricity on their day-to-day -day basis. You know, 99 something percent uh, percent of the population. It's probably less than that, but you know the, you get the point. They use electricity. Yet most of those people have no idea how electricity is generated, and nor they should. And and do, do, like, do you get that analogy? You know, to use something, you don't need to understand how it's made. But there are competent people, highly technical people, who study to generate whatever you want for them, and then you just kind of you just enjoy the benefits of using electricity. Well, it's exactly the same in probability theory. Uh, there are people with mathematical background that we call generators because they are the ones that can solve the problems that think that uh, look unsolvable to the rest of the population who are users. So for example, dealing with not enough data is a problem that has been resolved by the generators approximately 100 years ago. So it's not, it's not a problem. It's a problem only in the sense that the general public is not aware that there are solutions. And all you have to do is ask the people that have solved this problem hundreds of years ago and just follow the lead because they've done it already. So on the, um, on the um, not, not enough data story, uh, they, there's, uh, there's an American risk manager, very, uh, very uh, famous, uh, he wrote a book, which is again a bestseller. It's called "How to Measure Anything," uh, where um, it, th there are different books. It's how to measure anything, and then there's how to measure anything in cybersecurity. If if any of you listeners haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's not a technical book. Uh, it's it's kind of it's this important book for anybody who's doing any kind of business needs to understand because his his key conclusions are very simple. First you need much less data than you think you do, which you, by the way, most of the time you have. Um, you need different data from, from what you've been collecting and it will completely surprise you how you actually need completely different data. I'll tell a story on that uh, in a little while. And thirdly, even if you have absolutely no data, there are mathematical techniques and different expert aggregation techniques, like different scientific techniques that can be used to use even the to basically take even the most subjective opinions and turn it into sensible data. Uh, so all, all of that kind of you know, mystery around having not enough data that has been solved about hundred years hundred years ago. So all anybody wants to do to kind of to move beyond that first initial scare is just find the sources because, for example. Um, Doug Hubbard, at the Risk Awareness Week from the 17th to 21st of October, uh, will actually do a workshop demonstrating his research into aggregating different expert opinions. So there is actually, you know, again, it's a scientifically proven fact that if you use your subjective judgment, you will completely be off the mark. However, if you take subjective judgments from a number of people, and you use mathematical theory to aggregate them correctly, you will actually be much closer to reality than you would ever thought. 
even if some of the opinions would be completely kind of you know left field and random uh, so there, there are so many different solutions on, um, on dealing with the uh, data issue. And I promised you a, an interesting story and I'll, I'll make it very quick um, because as a hobby, I have a lot of friends who are you know, risk managers and mathematicians. And we um, saw an article that back in early 2000s, there were a couple of people in US that played the lottery and made millions of dollars because they were mathematically on the right side of the game. So they picked the games where the odds were on their side and made a lot of money in the progress. So we got a group together of about 14 risk managers, mathematicians, and we thought, can we do the same? By the way, we did. Our first game, we had 60% return on investment um, after taxes. So, you know, in, and it took us maybe three days to model it. So three days and three nights, and then <coughs> almost doubled our money. Um, not, not a bad result. And, and by the way, with very little risk, it, it wasn't like, oh, we were lucky. No, no, we, luck had nothing to do with our result. It was almost, like it was 90% guaranteed that we would almost double our money. And there was a little bit of upside and there was a 10% chance or actually 9% chance that we would lose half of our money. Um, so all, all of this was calculatable, but the, the reason I'm telling that story, so we follow, you know, we follow that and that's, that's really nice. And we kind of, we play that from time to time as, uh, still. And uh, the reason I'm telling that story is that we started with building a very complex model. Uh, because we had really good mathematicians, we basically replicated the same mathematical model that the lottery company, the government company had. We basically created another lottery simulation like they actually use in their normal work, only to discover that out of about 15 different parameters that we used in our model, only one mattered. And that was number of tickets sold at the particular hour. Nothing else matters. Like you can like, and so we simplified our model every game since. And we've, we, you know, we've been playing this for about three years. So we usually play like once or twice a year. Um, and so every time we would simulate now, our decision to play or not to play depends on a single cell formula in Excel. Like there's, there's you know, it's this big, this big simple formula. Uh, what I'm telling is that we thought we didn't have enough data when we started. We thought we would need a lot more data. It actually, it actually turns out that we needed much less and a completely different point of data that we originally anticipated. And that was, that, that was enough for us to make a decision, you know, shall we play or shall we not play? And it used to take maybe like a day to figure out whether we should play or not. Now it takes about 15 seconds. So, so you're talking like online gaming, roulette or something like that, or? No, no, your national state uh, lottery. national lottery based on the number of tickets in, in the yes. map and, yep. and, and you're winning. Well, it, it, it makes me think about, so if, if the decisioning and, and the modeling um, can benefit from these aggregate R2 um, math, mathematical formulas, I mean, we're in, in the day and age of all sorts of technical advantage um, advancements quantum computing is a good example, and, and others, how is that technology and automation changing or has it not yet changed? I mean, it sounds like if everything's modeled, it can be run as an algorithm, it can be autonomous. And we're moving in this world of, 
autonomous robots. They're going to be, as, as we've had several um, different talks and, and some guests on, on the podcast around autonomous workers and autonomous customers. And so the decisioning in that autonomous algorithmic world, I mean, we're talking smart contracts in the blockchain space, um, is that going to disintermediate the need for risk managers and, and significantly reduce the cost? Or how do you see that playing out? Where is that going? Yeah, so th this is a very interesting kind of um, direction for the discussion. And this is what I want to make very clear. Um, right now, we are into kind of in subjective, intuitive space. So at the very bottom. And then 100 miles above, we have the artificial intelligence helping us uh, make better decisions. So there's this distance about 100 miles between the two. What I am saying is that because the bottom side of intuitive and expert-based, expert judgment, uncalibrated expert judgment is so poor, you can actually improve not by 100 miles, but about by 100 meters, so just here, and you would already make so much difference that it would be ridiculous. So in, 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 in my corporate life, we moved from words and ratings and scorings and qualitative opinions to just the most basic model. And you know, in, in kind of in my mind, it's a kindergarten model. Basically, we just moved from no model to kindergarten model, saved $13 million. Like humongous difference. If we moved 100 miles to the artificial, we would probably spend a lot of money and time working on that and creating that, but we probably would have saved a lot more. But what I'm trying to say is that you don't need to jump from nothing to 100 miles. You can just jump an extra meter and already make so much difference to your organization. It, it's, it, it, you know, it's, even sim it's as simple as your company has a business plan. Well, try and create few scenarios, few risky scenarios to test where your company's business plan is most vulnerable. And that will already start highlighting so many new things that you didn't realize that will, could even make you change the business model maybe even dramatically, like the difference is so humongous. You know, Doug Hubbard in his book, he, call, he has this analogy, he calls it beat the bear fallacy. And you know, the two people going hiking, one is putting the hiking boots, the other one is putting the cross trainer, like running shoes. And the, the first is asking, you know, why are you putting the running shoes on? And the second saying, well, I heard there are bears. And uh, the First man goes, well, silly you, you're not going to outrun the bear. And the second goes, well, I don't need to outrun the bear. I just need to outrun you. And that's the whole idea behind risk, uh, risk management. You don't need to outrun uh, you know, reality. We, we, still, we still can't predict the future. Future is un like uncertain. That's the whole idea of, uh, uh, of risk management. And we're not really attempting to predict the future. We're, we're, we're attempting to reduce our uncertainty around the future. And by even moving small steps ahead, the changes and the effects could be so, so dramatic uh, for, for the organization. So if, if you ask me, what do I think about AI um, and um, machine learning? My simple answer is I, at this stage, do not care 
because I can do in simple Excel models something that will almost 180 turn the decision on its head. And that will already be sufficient for me to create a lot of value for the business to, to really kind of upgrade the, the quality of decision-making within the business. And I don't need to delay getting the, you know, I don't need to delay saving millions today and tomorrow waiting for the kind of, for the machine learning and AI to mature enough so we can apply apply for that. And, and you know, give you an, another example, uh, because we were, my department was the generators. We basically created calculators. We, ca we created an insurance calculator. We created an environmental risk calculator, like water pollution, air pollution, we had different calculators. And then we just kind of gave those calculators to the, to the other teams within the organization. And, and they just started using them for making decisions. They, they started plugging in their data, the, the data points that they always had anyway, like you know, chem chemical composition of, the, of, of a water probe from one of the rivers near the chemical plant. And uh, they plugged in the data that they always had. And then the calculator told them, is the risk significant? Is it not significant? How much money they, they should be spending on mitigating the risk? It gives all sorts of like valuable information that you can get from a very simple, basic kindergarten uh, calculator. And um, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm very glad that some of the software companies are beginning to pick, pick up on that and actually pre-designing, kind of creating those calculators within their software package that you can kind of switch on and plug in your data and have this you know, answer to your narrow problem uh, in, in software directly. Because we can, we can take an Excel, a blank Excel, and we can create any calculator inside Excel, but that requires you to be a generator. You have to be a generator to understand how to generate electricity and how to generate probabilities. Um, well, some companies already kind of taking all of that generation in-house, creating the calculators, and then you, just like you switch on the lights in the office, you can use the calculator to save hundreds of thousands and millions on, uh, on insurance or any, you know, whatever <clears throat> other it's, direction. It's amazing. It's, it shouldn't even be called risk management. It's, it's sort of the, the, I guess you hear the words quant analysis um, for everyone. And it depends decision on support is decision, the... decision support. I, I and the fact that you're linking it to software development. So these are the tools, but they could be the underlying model, the profitable model for the, for their whole business. So um, yeah, yeah. It, so, it, so for software development, by the way, and thank you for, for mentioning that, there's so much application. And we had a number of professionals doing a workshop on specifically that. Because when, whenever, you, whenever you're developing a piece of software, you need to basically forecast your budget and you need to forecast your timeline. And all, all of that is uncertain. You can take your kind of your gut feel and add 20% or add 50% on top. That's not really like, that's, that's also a form of risk management, not a very effective risk management because you probably over, or overcharge or undercharge quite significantly without understanding the underlying risks. Um, but there are simple templates, simple uh, mechanisms that uh, Sam Savage has on his website, probabilitymanagement.org, specifically for like software design projects where you can estimate the duration of different tasks and it gives you it the calculator automatically calculates the probability of meeting deadlines for example like if if you say oh we want to finish this in 10 weeks and then uh, the software will the calculator will tell you well actually there's 
5% probability that you'll finish in, in 10 weeks and 95% probability that you will take longer. And in fact, on average, you will take 15 weeks, but it could be up to 25 weeks. So it gives the, all, all of these amazing <coughs> insights that you can immediately use in your, uh, in, in your tendering process, in your budgeting, in your forecasting. It's amazing. It, it seems like an endless resource for, for decisioning. So, I, I mean, I'm just paying attention to the time here. I cannot believe we've, we've been, uh, you know, at it for almost an hour. I want to get into some of the, 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 the forward looking. I know we've maybe mentioned um, it a couple of times, but what does that future look like of, of risk management? Or maybe the, the term is, will completely change. Or, or what sort of resources can you, um, and advice can you provide to the listeners? as far as you know, how they think about it, how they can use it, um, the innovations that are happening, the things that excite you most and it should excite them. So in terms of the future, I mean, I hope for three things. Uh, first, I hope there's in risk management, there's the, such a thing is called backtesting. Uh, it basically means you can do whatever, but then you need to check whether it actually worked or not. And if it didn't work, you better drop it because otherwise it's silly if you continue doing something that doesn't work. So my first hope is that the regulators and the stakeholders and the central banks will start backtesting a lot of the methodologies that were commonplace. Because as soon as you start backtesting them, you'll realize that, well, they're, they're horoscopes. They're basically complete random hit and miss. Like they, they just have nothing to do with reality. They, they do not improve your decision-making. They, in fact, probably decrease the quality of decision-making. And if you were to just select randomly and pro prioritize risks randomly, you would probably be better off. There's, by the way, another piece of research which suggests like they, I, I don't know if you've ever came across that, but there's this uh, technique very common in risk management. It's called a heat map or a risk matrix. Yeah. It's like this five by five, you know, red, uh, color yellow. Coding. Yeah. Color coding, yeah. So there's a lot of research that basically the conclusion from that research is that they're worse than useless. They're not just useless, they're worse than useless. That means they actually add error to your decisions. Like if you think, oh, we have these, you know, three risks, high risks, three red risks, they're important. Um, they're not the three important risks. Something else is important, but you didn't see that because your methodology kind of misprioritized the whole thing. So number one, future, future trend, I hope we finally stop wasting time on different horoscopes and astrology and tarot cards and you know, all the other nonsense that comes with the word risk management. Um, number two, I think uh, generators will become more prominent and they will start creating calculators for everybody else to use. I hope we kind of, we get to a stage like in the energy where some people generate risk models and other people use them because it's actually not that difficult to use them but generating is in all honesty quite complex. So second, I, I hope that um, uh, generators will create enough calculators and templates for the rest of the businesses and industries to use to help them make it uh, you know, start with kind of basic decisions and then to more complex and, and then finally go into personal life. Because you know, in, and I'm, I'm sure the listeners can appreciate that you know, buying a house or renting a house is not a trivial decision. It's actually, you know, it's actually quite, a, and because for most of the people on the planet, their property is going to be the biggest piece of their retirement investment portfolio. Um, that, that's a life-changing choice. 
that you do not want to be uh, to be wrong about uh, and or for example you know immigration or not immigration you know there, there's a war in europe at the moment and a lot of people find it find it get emotional and find it difficult to make the decision on relocating and you know whether they support the war they don't support the war you know um, with risk analysis it, it, these are not these are not complex decisions they're very um, no brainers very much no brainers and you know war is evil and living in a country that is uh, the aggressor in the war is is not a good decision um, and so um, I think generators will become more active and uh, finally the future uh, I think we will start going into a lot more kind of virtual data sets that you have the calculator and you don't have the you don't have to collect the data you already have the virtual data set and you basically just plug in the data set into the virtual like you have the virtual calculator and somebody collected and cleaned the data for you and then you just plug them in and apply it to your to your decision making so th these are kind of the three big things that i see and if anybody's interested in kind of continuing to learn about risk management so risk awareness week is definitely the place to go it has free access options it has paid access options um, but that's where I spent, you know, a full year trying to find the workshops and the topics that actually meaningfully change uh, the quality of decision making. And, and then, of course, um, you mentioned, thank you for mentioning the book that I wrote many years ago with a friend of mine. Um, it's really easy to find if you just Google free risk management book. It's number one. Um, I, I think it's number one all over the world. And, and then um, I have another uh, article, which is one of the most popular articles on my uh, on my blog, it's called um, best risk management books. It's called 16 best risk management books. So if anybody kind of wants to learn about the decision science and the probability theory and the neuroscience, uh, but learn it not at the kind of complex textbook style, style level, but at the more kind of you know pop. I don't know what's the what's the kind of what's the word when somebody takes a complex concept and just turns it into like a more uh, commercial book and makes it very simple, very nicely illustrated. So there are like 16 books that are not hardcore science. They're in fact easy reading, really nice, and it, again, it's quite easy to find. Um, you know, maybe maybe we'll provide a link under the video uh, and the podcast. Um, but again, it's very easy to find. It's just you know best risk management books in Google. And I think it's either one or number two choice in um, in Google search. So that's where I would start uh, by kind of reading a little bit more and listening to some of the people that have done it many many times because there are plenty um, there are plenty of people in on the planet who have done this many many times and have been extremely successful doing that. And, and just keep in mind that you know none of this is really new. It's, it's not like we suddenly woke up and thought, oh, well, quantitative risk management is, uh, is amazing. Um, it was amazing 500 years ago when it was discovered. And that's, you know, that's how shipments were insured and that's how banks started operating. Um, none of this is new. We're using um, mathematical methods that have been created during Second World War. Uh, some of the methods and some of the theories that we use have been created before, before the First World War. Uh, and uh, some of the techniques that uh, we use have been created in oil and gas about 70 years ago. So there are just so much information on how to do risk management properly so that it helps the decision making 
and not just a, a pretty you know piece of paper somewhere in the corner it, it it really you know i really appreciate today's discussion because it lifts the veil of you know that term risk management i mean your your journey your excitement and passion for you know the use cases how you can apply it where it's going um the platform that you built you're, you're clearly um you know and not just an expert but you're, you're at the forefront because you're interacting which is a key part from with, with all those experts around the world so uh for anyone listening you definitely need to uh, tap into these resources they uh, it was eye-opening for for me today so i really you know appreciate that this is the uh time here we always do these rapid fire questions um so you know just expecting very short you know sure. one, one word answers and and just so people can better understand you you know your your thinking get inside that big mathematical head of yours i'm ready <clears throat> so let's uh, go um first question what is your most favorite holiday destination city or country um somewhere around the village where i live in spain right now i just love being in kind of north of spain you're you're in northern spain right now amazing um number two what is one piece of advice you'd give yourself if you went back in time when you were you know just coming up through the as a student D don't use leverage <laughs> when investing don't use leverage we we've all been burnt with our hands in the cookie jar with leverage uh it, it's it's plaguing you know the the crypto markets obviously uh, i'm not sure how you know, you use risk management there, but um, yeah. I, 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 and I do, by the way, it's probably like a topic for a whole new webcast. I, I use a lot of risk management when I invest. The, yeah, the risk management investing, you got to come back. Welcome to come back and let's talk about that. Uh, number three, what motivates you each and every day? Um, I don't know, just the beauty surrounding me. I've been living in this part of Spain for the last seven years and every time we take kids to school and we me and my wife go for a walk on the beach after we've taken them to school just the 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 sea and the mountains and the trees around and just before this podcast i we went mushroom picking um with, with my wife in the forest uh, nearby so i think that just that the beauty of nature that inspires me a lot nature and the interactions and and last rapid fire where do you see yourself in in five to ten years alex I have no idea. That's the that's the beauty, I think, of being a risk management professional, um, because I have no idea where I'll be. Uh, but I know for a fact that everything I do now and I was doing before, I was doing in the way that would place me in a kind of in a favorable position, whatever happens. And then life could take me anywhere. Uh, and I think we will be really kind of well off and uh, feeling good about it uh, and in fact you know i don't really care where i'll be i just know that it will be something that i'll enjoy and that will give me a lot of you know, pleasure you're definitely not a glass uh, half empty you're a glass half full kind of guy right um i, I love that 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 answer because you're, you're you're in the in the moment and you've equipped yourself with with those tools to make effective decisions so as long as you're, I've always thought is you're, you're going to be comfortable, not just in your own skin, but with the decisions that you make. And even those tiny little decisions, when you add them all up, we've chosen the path. We've, we have chosen the path based on those little decisions. So for comfortable with those decisions, we should be comfortable with where we are all in life. 
exactly. otherwise to your point earlier if we 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 run the same program we do the same thing we'll get the same outcome and it does not make sense so it's uh it's amazing and i definitely want to welcome you back to do that quant analysis uh for comp for investment decisioning that sounds like a very interesting discussion uh and i want to thank you on behalf of the uh, fintech and funding community here at the fintech fridays podcast for for joining us sharing your your stories your your expertise i think you know you didn't just whet the appetite you got a lot of people thinking uh, differently, and I think that's that's an amazing start. So thank you uh, so much. And I think every you you had already mentioned people can find you and uh, in, in the Risk Awareness Week next week or the Risk Academy. What is the Risk Academy website? It's uh, Risk Academy one word dot blog. Um, uh, but but again, it's uh, everything is now easily findable in Google because it it has the kind of this niche name. So Risk Academy, you just Google it. It's number one uh in, in in the world uh, under that keyword uh and uh it's very easy to find me in linkedin as well alex Sidorenko. fantastic alex uh, i want to thank you again for joining um you know to all of our listeners if you're new to fintech fridays uh please check out some of the incredible past episodes on the site i think you'll be surprised with what you find we look forward to seeing you next friday for another episode of fintech fridays have a great weekend everyone Thanks a lot, Alex. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Craig. You've been listening to Fintech Fridays, brought to you by NCFA and Partners. Tune in weekly for the latest Fintech Friday podcast by subscribing to this channel. The National Crowdfunding and Fintech Association of Canada is a nonprofit actively engaged with social and investment fintech sectors around the globe and provides education, research, industry stewardship, services, and networking opportunities to thousands of members and subscribers. For more information, please visit ncfacanada.org.